Welcome back, folks, to Black Hoodie Alchemy. As always, I'm your host, Anthony Tyler. Uh, Today, it's going to be a solo episode. I thought I would contextualize some things that I've talked about in other episodes, um, expound upon them, and couch it in a... uh, in couch it with a topic that I haven't yet completely discussed. So we're going to talk about dreams and the metaphysics of and dream entities. So just right out the gate before, because what do I mean by entity? How wooey are we going to get? And if you're familiar with this show, we're going to dive about as far as we possibly can, but we're going to keep it as empirical as possible. Um, all in the same breath. But first off, if you haven't heard, uh, Tippy Patson came back for round three. You can hear that on last week's episode. Uh, this episode is coming out a little late, but uh, you know, better late than never, right? I watched the uh, Twilight Zone episode last night where the guy, the uh, the the thief, gets shot by the cops and goes to a heaven that's completely mundane and boring, and so boring. And like a simulation that he starts to lose his mind. And then at the end, he realizes that he's been in hell the whole time. Classic. Simple episode, but one of my favorites, honestly. Um, so last week, I mentioned that the UFO documentary I was in debuted. Um, I mentioned that you could go and rent it, I believe, though. And you couldn't yet. So sorry about that if anyone was looking. Um but the place where I said you could get it is accurate. Uh, you could go to the Mind Escape Patreon. I'll have that in the links. I believe it's also going to be on Vimeo. Uh, and they're working on, they're exploring the possibilities of other platforms that they might be able to get it on. But at the very least, starting out the Mind Escape Patreon, and then I've heard from them that it will be on Vimeo. I don't know if there's going to be a delay there, if it will be immediately on there, but now you can actually go view it get your eyeballs on it. I haven't seen it yet either. I uh, I think I will have seen it by next week. So we can uh, talk about that on the podcast a little bit here. But uh, very excited about that. Got a lot of uh, friends and colleagues, I guess I would say, uh, that I really, uh, I really respect and appreciate. And um, it's, it's a little surreal that I'm able to be in a documentary with them so that's exciting and yeah well uh oh that was the last thing is um apparently we got the uh the the photo of the trophy and everything it's uh it's like a glass panel engraved with a with a nice base on it um and it is the people's choice award of the ufo expo in roswell where this uh documentary debuted recently um, and the documentary won it. Yeah. Uh, so as within, so without from UAPs to DMT, uh, basically a philosophical, empirical look at the relationship between people's um, UFO experiences and their, uh, you know, the commonalities between that surreal experience and the psychedelic experience because sometimes interestingly they both overlap but even when they don't overlap even when you haven't like taken a chemical and then seen these weird things um the commonalities between them are very interesting and it's not to say that everyone should be going and taking these things because you know these things are necessary to see or quintessential or certainly not our saviors by any stretch but that there's something going on here, something unexplainable so far, um, is pretty much undeniable at this point. And if you would like to debate that, I urge you to go check out this documentary because it will give you some really serious food for thought from, from some legitimate people. So dreams are um, a recurring theme on this podcast and this show in general. And 
they've always been particularly important to me uh, because they seem to be one of the thresholds and one of the primary thresholds that remain empirical and completely scientific, um, scientifically validated. But uh, all that scientific validation hasn't helped to demystify it. Um, psychedelics are the same way. Sleep paralysis, uh, sleep and dream phenomena in general is very much in this uh this crossroads of science and mysticism you know of all the things science has been able to demystify these are some of the uh the last bastions of like genuine mysticism and you know we talked about sleep paralysis a little bit in um the episode where i talk about poltergeists and demonology from a jungian perspective uh we talked about dreams a bit um and alchemy as uh, adaptation that episode as well as most recently with our friend uh, brad kelly of the art of darkness podcast and i went into some of my experiences with dreams um that went into writing my book dive manual so i thought i would go into that a little more there was at one point i was planning on doing a dive manual inspired episode and this will probably be the closest thing to it uh, because it's going to focus a bit on the siren. And I'll explain that a bit more and what that means in, a, in an archetypal sense. But first, I want to go over some things. I've talked about this before, but it's important to bring up as context here uh, because A, most people still are, are, are largely unfamiliar with the 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 scientific studies of uh vs ramachandran you know phantoms in the brain the most famous book but he's done lots of work beyond that um and they have heavy implications to the kind of subject matter that we talk about here on the show um and b whenever i have brought it up it it, it seems that when i bring it up again people always they're never like, yeah, of course, of course. There, there's more of a, of a, oh yeah, yeah, good point. So it seems a bit unsung. So I don't mind bringing it up again. If you've heard me in a lot of interviews on other people's shows in the past, you've probably heard me mention V.S. Ramachandran a bit. But like I said, I stand behind it. So we're, uh, I'm going to read a little bit of this to you here from Dive Manual. In 1999, the neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran wrote in his book, Phantoms in the Brain, about the effect of the neurological mirror system in the cerebral cortex by detailing his own research and practices as a medical professional. Interestingly, some of his recounted stories, supplemented by the data, tell of helping patients rehabilitate from neurological ailments like phantom limb syndrome. This phantom limb is, in layman's terms, the brain's attempt to neurologically account for the limb that is no longer connected to the body. When the brain finds that there is nothing left to neurologically reflect or no limb to process, this lack of limb becomes an antithesis for the brain, causing most patients to feel extreme forms of pain and tension from this non-existent limb. Um, and this even happens with people that are born without the limbs. Uh, in a famous anecdote given by Ramachandran in the book, he tells of holding a mirror up to the arm of a patient, creating the optical illusion that the reflection of the patient's remaining hand replaced the hand missing. When the patient wiggled his remaining hand, he watched its reflection wiggle, and as the man watched his illusory or reflective limb wiggle, the pain disappeared. So he put the reflection in the spot where his limb was missing and noticed results. Ramachandran tested this on many other phantom limb patients, finding that it did not work with every single person, but it did work with the overwhelming majority, even taking steps to account for placebo effects. Um, since then, many other doctors have taken this mirror box therapy and run with it, experimenting with many patients and finding remarkable results with implications that the scientific community is still trying to comprehend. In effect, phantom limb is still something that is only somewhat understood, some of it can be attributed to a person's brain missing the feedback from their limbs no longer there, but actually many people born without limbs experience vivid phantom limbs. <clears throat> this seems to suggest some evolutionary neurobiological mechanism at play here. Whether or not we have limbs to begin with, our human brains develop the propensity and impulse to incorporate these limbs anyway. 
Now let's consider this from a different vantage point. If a person can have a phantom limb stemming from an innate neurobiological mechanism further strengthened by the repetition of having once had a limb in the case of amputees, then might we be able to apply this to the psyche? Suppose then that we have quote-unquote phantom limbs of the psyche and not just of the appendages. Now, it seems to me that in essentially every case, potentially you could find a case where this doesn't fit, but to me, every case, dreams are this sort of phantom limb of the psyche. You know, scientists have called dreams a sort of like an exercise of your sanity where it shows that with a lack of sleep and dreams being a part of that, you start to lose your mind. Um, sure, some of that is physical exertion, but there seems to be an emphasis itself on the dreams. And as we talked about with Brad Kelly in our episode about art and metaphysics, you know, we talked about the idea of uh, dreams being not only a processing of your sensory data around you, but a projection of what you know you might desire. Jung would call that wish fulfillment, um, or Freud would call that wish fulfillment. Um, Viktor Frankl would call that well a will to meaning. Jung would probably get a lot more alchemical with it. But in any case, you know, I like the example of the cave paintings of the hunt. You know, there's every reason to believe that they not only drew those as some sort of catalog of what had happened, but as a projection of what was to come. You know, they were visualizing. And beyond New Age concepts of manifestation and you know, you don't have to get into quantum physics and 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 new age woo just to understand the basic power of visualizing. And so I've mentioned this a couple times, most recently in my conversation with Brad Kelly. So I so I thought I would go ahead and read the quote here. This is Jung on dreams uh, from the structure and dynamics of the psyche. Quote. The term compensation naturally gives us only a very general idea of the function of dreams. But if, as happens, in long and difficult treatments, the analyst observes a series of dreams often running into hundreds, there gradually forces itself upon him a phenomenon which, in an isolated dream, would remain hidden behind the compensation of the moment. This phenomenon is a kind of developmental process in the personality itself. At first, it seems that each compensation is a momentary adjustment of one-sidedness or an equalization of disturbed balance. But with deeper insight and experience, these apparently separate acts of compensation arrange themselves into a kind of plan. They seem to hang together and in the deepest sense to be subordinated to a common goal so that a dream so that a long dream series no longer appears as a senseless string of incoherent and isolated happenings, but resembles the successive steps in a planned and orderly process of development. I have called this unconscious process spontaneously expressing itself in the symbolism of long dream series individuation process. And there we go. I said Jung would get more alchemical with it. All right, so painting a picture here of something, something just beyond our immediate sensory perception you know, below the tip of the iceberg. And particularly, I mentioned sleep paralysis in the demonology episode. And I talked about a little bit of the science and how it was curious that even with all the science, we still couldn't fully explain why, like the extent of what is going on here. Uh, these things are extremely vivid, you know, the shadow people of sleep paralysis. And when you look into paranormal accounts, whether it be poltergeists or even possession, um, and yes, you know, there's plenty of hokiness with possession, but go back and listen to that other episode. We go into it in a bit more detail. And even if most of it is bullshit, there are some weird cases out there. So let's listen um, to the science of sleep paralysis a little bit here. <clears throat> and we'll read a little bit more from Dive Manual. As I began to ask more and more people about sleep paralysis, 
I was astounded how many people suffered from it and how many people were willing to suggest that it was a real encounter of some kind. Many of these experiencers detailed to me their recurring sleep paralysis phenomena, and these are people from all walks of life, all backgrounds. Every single experiencer I talked to wondered if they had been visited by something. Some of the people I spoke with were even considering the idea that they be, had been abducted by extraterrestrials. This is a notion I would somewhat agree with yet not subscribe to, for I consider aliens to be another rendition of classical archetypal phenomenology, leaving room for the possibility of otherworldly beings but not assuming such. In terms of health and psychology, let's consider the implications of the brain's sleep cycle, the waves of the ocean, if you will. During the average sleep, a person passes from the first two stages, transitioning from alpha to theta waves, into the third and fourth stages of sleep, predominated by delta waves. Stage four is where somnambulism or sleepwalking will occur, and the fifth stage is the REM cycle. A person does not cycle through these sleep stages in a chronological order, but more so bobs and weaves through it. However, all humans phase through these sleep cycles with similar patterns at similar rates. It is most commonly stated that sleep paralysis occurs during stage five REM, but it also appears to occur as around stage four, when a person begins drifting into the deepest levels of sleep. When it occurs during entry into REM, or entry into sleep overall, it is considered hypnagogic, the suffix of the word meaning to lead forth or guide. Occurrence upon exiting stage 5, uh, usually implying that the sleeper has woken up, is hypnopompic, the suffix essentially meaning to send away. In the practice and study of hypnotherapy, somnambulism is considered uh, considered an outside-directed state, meaning that it is generally a metaphorical process of reading a script. There must be some sort of format given for the somnambulism to occur, otherwise there is no reason for any animation to occur to begin with. For these reasons, somnambulism is an intricate and essential state in any form of hypnosis, but this eerily begs the question, what is providing the script for the sleeper? We may say that the unconscious mind provides such a script, but this brings with it more questions than answers. It is worth noting that somnambulism occurs during stage four of sleep, leaving it right on the heels of the sleep paralysis spectrum. Of course, these phenomena are polar opposites on the face of it, but they are predicated on the same basis, the sleeper losing certain large faculties of self-control. Along similar lines of thinking, common sleep paralysis folklore suggests that a person never fall asleep supine with the chest up to the sky. This is considered easy access for the demon to sit on the chest and strangle the sleeper. And scientific studies have shown that posture maintained during sleep is a determinant factor in whether a person will experience sleep paralysis. Sleeping supine apparently having a higher statistical occurrence of sleep paralysis than any other sleep posture. A study conducted in 2014 by Jahal Baland and V.S. Ramachandran reads, We specifically propose that this perceived intruder is the result of a hallucinated projection of the genetically hardwired body image in the right paredial region, namely the same circuits that dictate aesthetic and sexual preferences of body morphology. A follow-up study End quote. A follow-up study by the same scientists was also released in 2017, further relating the phenomenology of the shadow people to the brain's neurological mirror system, which we have discussed the implications of already. Another study even managed to associate these hellish symptoms with biophenomenological preconditions. One factor labeled intruder, quote, one factor labeled intruder consisted of a sensed presence, fear, and auditory and visual hallucinations is conjectured to originate is conjectured to originate in a hypervigilant state initiated in the midbrain another factor incubus comprising pressure on the chest breathing difficulties and pain is attributed to effects of hyperpolarization of the motoneurons on perceptions of respiration a third factor labeled unusual bodily experiences consisting of floating or flying sensations, out-of-body experiences, and feelings of bliss is related to physically impossible experiences generated by conflicts of endogenous and exogenous activation related to body position, orientation, and movement. 
implications of this last factor for understanding of orientational primacy and self-consciousness are considered central features of the model developed here are consistent with recent work on hallucination on hallucinations associated with hypnosis and schizophrenia if you ask me that's some pretty interesting food for thought and it really helps contextualize and understand a lot of what's going on with sleep paralysis especially when you consider um, that stress and varying degrees of trauma are involved with this sort of jam of the sleep function process. But that still doesn't explain all the extents. And uh, we're kind of left wondering. We're left wondering why any of this is happening. They seem to be phantom limbs of the psyche in one way or another. We could go further than that. But this premise as a starting point seems to be sound. So I think the question has already been addressed in a sort of roundabout way, but to consider the nature of the dream entity, quote unquote, well, as I've said before, um, even Jung considered the archetypes autonomous, you know, representing facets of our psyche that intertwine with the forces of nature, if you will. And that largely dictates that you know, there's a sort of a Taoist go with the flow mentality required here because not everything influencing our psyche is of our control. So that's the, you know, psychological way of explaining it. There's these things are alarm bell systems when it has to do with trauma and they're, you know, I don't know, a transcendental epiphanies or callings when there when they have to do with catharsis and autonomy uh, you know again if you need a refresher meaning that something is self-directed you know almost like essentially like an ai sentient means that there's is actually something on the other side just like you or you know perceptible conscious so forth and you know no one really knows um that's going to be up to you as the listener, each individual person, really. And sometimes on a case-by-case -case basis, I think I've, I've said this before, to wed the Jungian model with the truly paranormal model, because it, it, clearly the Jungian sentiment is the boilerplate. It's the foundation. But when you look into this stuff, even Jung himself was um, not one to deny the realities of the unexplainable. And it seems that our minds, our psyches create, they have these archetypal placeholders for aspects of the psyche that are trying to, you know, unify. And every once in a while, if there is such a thing as sentience that exists non-physically outside of the human psyche, then those placeholder archetypes in our psyche become the bottles for genies, you know, that memify inside our, our psyches and virally replicate, like is described in the definition of the, the evolutionary meme. So something is going on here, especially when you look into like meme theory and how memes are a psychological unit that are equivalent to genes in the physical biology. You see how an idea can become implanted and virally spread and incubate and then replicate. So there's something going on, but how far the rabbit hole goes is kind of up to you. Now, if you're extremely familiar with my work, um, you know, I, 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 there's definitely some additional food for thought, but some of that you know, the basics of that you've heard before, but that was important for me to, to get out because what comes next is very personal. You know, it's not anything I'm ashamed of or anything that I did wrong, but it's real hard on my sleeve here, folks. Um, and it's also not anything particularly new because it is the premise of dive manual. Um, but it's something that I know certainly not everyone listening to the show has read the book and it's not something that has to be relegated specifically to the book you know 
I don't care if we buy it to to hear these parts. Um, because this is, I guess, um, going to contextualize everything we've gone over so far in a in a really personal, real world sort of way. And I don't mean it to be any sort of advice. Well, I mean, I guess it could be advice, but this is like peer to peer. You know, I'm not giving you any bits of teachings in a way where I'm saying, follow my path. I'll get you to the promised land. You know, this is, I'm another wayward traveler and these are my experiences. And this is how you can use something like, you know, a mystical Jungian perspective to really effectively change your, your life through your own psyche. But, you know, in terms of taking a really neurotic, um, damaged, broken, nihilistic, self-nihilistic psyche and carving out a comfortable everyday life, you know, not just externally, but internally. That's something I, I can comfortably say, you know, and it, it's the results have lasted and maintained for years now and haven't slowed down. So, um, I can at least say that I have seen results in my own work. And I talked about this a little bit with Brad Kelly, um, how my own dreams sort of led me down this uh, esoteric alchemical rabbit hole. I'll go into it again in a little bit more detail. And this is where I'd like to explain the siren archetype a bit more. But before that, we're going to go into a break. I'm very excited for this commercial break. We have a lot of cool new sponsors that I can't wait for you to hear. So don't skip past it. Go through it. And I'll see you on the other side. Don't forget, this is Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm Anthony Tyler. We'll be right back. My thoughts travel quicker than light speed beyond a galaxy where infinite life be. I'm on a mission to sightsee, traverse higher dimensions. Don't consider it lightly. My flow to rings of Saturn, cut the fabric of space time, create a wormhole with a single dagger. Every bar that's thrown creates a star that's born within the nebula. I'm never far from home. Each metaphor a silver cord between the material planes and the realms of unfiltered thoughts. I kick a fat flow that could backtrack through black holes, return to its original time capsule. Spit a rhyme, it's vintage. Each line's precision and complexity mirror the nature of quantum physics. If I learned it's one thing, the 90% of these rappers in the universe is unseen. Time for mass disclosure, a massive international awakening to bring the masses over. No more media scare tactics, doom and gloom. A new future awaits that we soon to view. Time for mass disclosure, a massive international awakening to bring the masses over. Yes, hi, hello. My name is uh, codename Jefferson Tillamuxlinger, former Illuminati cloning lab manager and current member of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I'm here to tell you about our special GoFundMe link to help us get to uh, Ravioli, Finland in order to meet with our friend Judo Kevorkian and track down the Lovecraftian Titan known as Santa the Claus. We're still wrestling Illuminati Gators, but we're, you, you know, trying to branch out, you know, so go to tippypatson.edu.com forward slash backslash dot gov and find our GoFundMe link. And you can also purchase some of the dolphin glue head gel that we've made with our friend Silverback Commando. Uh, remember, kids, do school and uh, stay in drugs. I mean, that's what the bathrooms are for anyway. Uh, get in there with your hall pass. Do a line of blow. You know, maybe pound off and have a cigarette and then get your ass back to class, you rapscallion. All right. I, I think that's it for now. Goodbye. Argh, matey. I'm a pirate. 
and my name is Apex Monsoon. Arrgh, hello there. I am a pirate. Arrgh, I am a ghost pirate. Arrgh, I am the cosmic ghost pirate. Apex Monsoon, member of Tippy Patson's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And I have a new product for you to purchase with your spare doubloons. Are you looking for more luck on your UFO and Sasquatch hunts? Or more luck finding the booty? Well, I have traveled the seven cosmic seas and, you know, killed a lot of time. So together with my friend Bayou Jones as illustrator, I have created the Magic Dolphin Tarot Deck. It's full of dolphins and cool pirate things like the needles they used to use to inject mercury into their shafts to uh, combat STDs. And you can find it at Tippy Patson's website, this tarot deck, at tippypatson.edu.government forward slash backslash dot com. And you can travel the universe with your third eye and uh, find the booty, matey. Arg! I'm a ghost pirate! The cosmic ghost pirate, matey! Hey there, dang old man, Bayou Jones here. Uh, I ain't gonna tell you about that time I was, uh, going down to them, uh, swampy parts of the Everglades, you know, way over down yonder, and, uh, I done, uh, stumbled across some mushrooms, and I was real hungry, so I ate them, and then I also, I always bring my, my crack cocaine pipe with me, so I did that, and I did that, and then I dang old... You know, I always also go dang old wrestle damn gators just for fun, and I figured out that they were dang old Illuminati gators out there. You know, shape shifting and all that, and uh, and uh, you know, dang old gators. One day I went out and wrestled them, and you know, we, with the power of uh, crack cocaine and uh, mushrooms, you can too. You know, so just go on do that. Um, get yourself some of that and uh, go out and wrestle them gators. You can make some gator nuggets and uh, they're very, very tasty, buddy. Okay. Hello everybody, this is dang old uh, Tippy Patson here from um, the Black Hoodie Alchemy episodes. I, I just, uh, we're trying to get a whole bunch of different people um, down to the Everglades where we formed our little uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, you know, so we can uh, figure out animal telepathy and we can wrestle Illuminati gators and make gator nuggets and uh, we can, um, you know, stop the harvest of adrenochrome and we can smoke a whole lot of catnip and do and basically save humankind so you know if you want to hear the black hoodie alchemy episodes uh where me and my crew the league of extraordinary gentlemen are uh um telling you know bringing our message just check out black hoodie alchemy episodes 14 30 32 33 34 35 and 38 now just remember, Tippy Patton wants you to come down to the Florida Everglades and help him save the world from the Illuminati alligators. Uh, but there will be no animal winking off. Uh, don't we don't do that here anymore? Okay. Well, we're just gonna be wrestling them. No, no other, no bad touches. All right, come down to the Everglades. Take care. Bye. Musicians experience a lot of frustration with music marketing and promotion. They have no idea how to get their music heard, and they're spending hours sending emails, making phone calls, and hitting up their friends to promote them. With our industry-powered digital marketing platform, we can set up your media plan in minutes. Our team will automatically distribute your music across all the best channels, so you can focus on actually making the music. Submit your music today on our website at mymusicpromoter.com. That's mymusicpromoter.com. Thank you. Playing Bob. It was a stone group, my man. You are the most white. Yeah, right. Just get the fuck out, man. Let's go. All right, so let's read some bits about 
the siren itself here. In the 12th book of the Odyssey, Circe, the island witch, warns Odysseus of the sirens and their songs, saying, First you will come to the sirens who enchant all who come near them. If anyone unwarily draws in too close and hears the singing of the sirens, his wife and children will never welcome him home again, for they sit in a green field and warble him to death with the sweetest with the sweetness of their song. There is a great heap of dead men's bones lying all around, with the flesh still rotting off them. Therefore pass these sirens by, and stop your men's ears with wax that none of them may hear. But if you like, you can listen yourself, for you may get the men to bind you as you stand upright on a cross piece halfway up the mast, and they must lash the rope's end to the mast itself, that you may have the pleasure of listening. If you beg and pray the men to unloosen you, then you must they must bind you faster. When the crew have taken you past these sirens, it cannot give you coherent directions as to which of two courses you are to take. I will lay the two alternatives before you, and you must consider them for yourself. When Odysseus and his men uh, set sail and finally encountered the sirens, Odysseus tied tightly to the ship's mast. They heard the sirens sing the lyrics. Come here, renowned Odysseus, and listen to our two voices. No one ever sailed past us without staying to hear the enchanting sweetness of our song, and he who listens will go on his way, not only charmed but wiser, for we know all the ills that the gods laid upon the Argives and the Trojans before Troy, and can tell you everything that is going to happen over the whole world. And in the Argonautica, Jason and the Argonauts only escape the songs of the sirens through the aid of the poet Orpheus, who plays his lyre louder than the siren song. In her book about the subject, Jane Ellen Harrison analyzes the siren's deep context within Greek mythology and the Eleusinian mysteries. As well, she provides a bit of detail highlighting the Egyptian inspiration within Greek folklore and mythology. The siren of Greek mythology holds a deeper symbolism than most people give it credit for today. Harrison explains that it is archetypally synonymous with the Greek ker, K-E-R-E, -E, which were the feminine psychopomps, carrying the souls of the humans to and from life and death. The ker were also the sisters of the, mor of the mori, known commonly today as the fates. I might be getting all of these pronunciations wrong as well, but... You know, I'm not, I'm not a linguist. That's not what I'm here for. <laughs> Take it up with somebody else. Um, Harrison tells us further of the classical folklore of the siren. Their song takes effect at midday. Quote, their song takes effect at midday in the windless calm. The end of that song is death. It is only the warning of Circe that we know of the heap of bones corrupt in death. Horror is kept in the background, seduction to the fore. It is the very image of obsession, of nightmare, of a haunting midday dream. The woman can be none other than the evil siren. The terrors of the midday were known to the Greeks in their sun-smitten land. Nightmare was to take them also as a daymare. Such a, such a visitation, coupled possibly with occasional cases of sunstroke, was, a, of course, the obsession of a demon. Even a troubled, tormenting, illicit dream was the work of a siren, in sleep, the will and the reason are becalmed and the passions unchained. That the midday nightmare went to the making of the siren is clear from the windless calm and the heat of the sun in Homer. The horrid end, the wasting death, the sterile enchantment, the loss of wives and babes, all look the same way. What's more, Plato wrote in the Tenth Book of the Republic about the siren and their relationship to the fates. What he described are the classical musical spheres that create existence in Greek cosmogony, which are equivalent to the Sephiroth of the Tree of Life. Quote, the spindle turns on the knees of necessity, and the upper surface of each circle is a siren who goes round with them, hymning a single tone or note. The eight together form one harmony and round about at equal intervals. Um, at equal intervals, there is another band, three in number, each sitting upon her throne. These are the fates, daughters of necessity, who are clothed in white robes and have chaplets upon their heads. Lachesis and Clotho and Atropis, who accompany with their voices the harmony of the sirens. Lachesis singing of the past, 
Clotho of the present, Atropos of the future. Clotho from time to time assisting with a touch of her right hand the revolution of the outer circle of the whirl or spindle, and Atropos with her left hand touching and guiding the inner ones, and Lachesis laying hold of either in turn, first with one hand and then with the other. Here in Plato's depiction of the cosmos, the sirens serve as an interesting and compatible allegory uh, to the Clyphoth of the Tree of Death and how they correlate to the Sephiroth, um, which I find to be extremely interesting. So what does this all mean? Let's tie this all together here. Sleep paralysis, the siren, dream entities, sleep phenomena, archetypal patterns, catharsis, trauma, the trees of life and death, and their access points. Well, for me, other than the open-ended extent of the sort of genie in a bottle allegory or whatever that I presented as a wedding between the Jungian psychology and the unexplainable stories and accounts, this, uh, this model of the siren is, is particularly interesting here. And it shows that, you know, not everything is as it seems. You know, something can be ghastly and horrifying, like a, like a sleep paralysis haunting. You know, it could be red-eyed, it could be lurkerish. Sometimes it could touch you from what people say. But then there's what I experienced, and it was, to go get into it again briefly, um, recurring dreams of an ex-girlfriend. Um, and this was, it was certainly the most passionate thing I had experienced up until that time. Um, and this was years and years ago. Um, I was 19. Um, I'm 27 now. So, and I'd always been interested in philosophy and comparative religion, but I'd never gone down the deep esoteric rabbit holes. And after things sort of cooled out with this girl, well, first, it's important to mention that she helped sort of spark further interest in the esoteric. You know, we both were uninitiated, quote unquote, but we're both interested. And so I went further down these rabbit holes because I started to have dreams as well about her where I was, there were recurring dreams. And they would happen every so often, but it did get to the point where it was the only dream I even had for like, it's like a couple of years. Um, Sometimes I'd go months without having a dream and then I'd have like three dreams in a week, you know, it'd be really sporadic. So it wasn't like every night, but it was the only dream I had. And it was the same motif in different instances where this girl is beckoning me to follow her and I'm chasing her through these equivalents of mazes and all these metaphysical situations, whether I'm adrift out at sea, castaway style or floating through space or going through like a crazy hedge maze etc. And I can never catch up to her. And it was driving me insane because, as, uh, particularly over time, because it was the most impactful relationship I had had. And every time I seemed to get over it, I would have these dreams. So it was like my unconscious mind was keeping it transfixed in my head. And so my conscious mind just felt sort of at the mercy of these dreams. And I wanted nothing more than to just go about my life and just not have any of this happen. Um, but they were so vivid. And then when you have these dreams enough, it's like, all right, am I meant to be with her? What is, why, what is the point of this? And in the back of my head, and it would wane and grow. And eventually it just, I stoked the fire more and more. Uh, but it was always in the back of my head at the very least. I knew this had to be some sort of deep echo from something in my own psyche. I, it was something that I needed to figure out. It was something I needed to figure out apart from my relationship to her. But that being said, my relationship to her was integral to understanding it. That was the beginning. I needed to separate from that to get to the end, though. It was difficult because there's a lot of baggage involved with something like that. And when you're having, you know, uh, recurring dreams, it's just kind of salt in the wounds. It's just not allowing something to properly heal. 
It's exasperating. Why can I not just stop having this dream? What am I beholden to here? And to me, that was the siren. These dreams were not nightmares, but everything that was described of just wasting away at the feet of the siren as they sing this song of all these empty promises. And this woman, I call her Ramona in the book because the whole thing in a, in a tongue-in-cheek way reminded me of Scott Pilgrim versus the world, and I do love that movie even still. Never read the comics. Um, just never really read manga, but I respect it, and a great movie. So I call her Ramona in the book. I actually, that was my nickname for her um, for a period of time. A great girl, great woman. You know, we're both grown now, essentially. Um, and got nothing but good things to say about her. We still have a good rapport. Both don't really talk much anymore. I haven't talked to her in a year, almost a couple of years, probably. Both in relationships now, happily. Um, so it wasn't anything, everything that was um, tumultuous about it was me trying to sort of burn away the all there's different esoteric schools of thought that call it different things but so many of them have this this philosophy that true love and like romance i don't think you know soulmates a different thing but love can be found with many different people um and i don't i think you can experience glimpses of it without it being like full and even healthy you can still experience little glimpses of it and those little glimpses even when it's not full or completely healthy is you know seeing in someone else parts of yourself that you wouldn't be able to see otherwise and not in like a narcissistic or self-centric way but in a way where the beauty of a relationship is you help each other uncover new parts of yourself and grow and so you can see those parts and not have a healthy relationship or not even have a lasting one and then uh so where are you left when you have unresolved you've seen parts of yourself psychic phantom limbs if you will that have become animated and out of your control and you don't know what to do with them huh? Are we all coming full circle here? The people who have hung on through these strange rabbit holes, finally having some light bulbs come off. The power of dreams, man. The world is the our our everyday lives are still far more mystical than um than so many of us care to believe. And it's here that I'd like to note the sacred alchemical marriage of the positive and negative you know, from the esoteric sense, the divine masculine and feminine. But this isn't, remember, I'll bring it up every time just, just to help people understand. This isn't gender politics. Uh, this isn't anything to do with sexuality directly. Yes, those things are all derivatives. And in the ancient sense, these things have been used to promote unhealthy stereotypes um, in the sense of saying that this is the only path. But feminine and masculine as like physical representations, um, you know, they're so very far, far down. They're at the bottom of this giant comparison umbrella. And at the top, it is archetypal forces of nature you know, negative and positive. The electron and the proton, among other things, the conscious and the unconscious, the known and the unknown, the active and the passive. You know, active um, can build things, but it can also destroy things. It can be very reckless. Passivity um, can sometimes not get things done, but it's nurturing, among other things. You know, so uh, the trees of life and death, um, the yin and the yang, the yin being the negative, the yang being the positive. You know, you look at the yin and yang, you don't think 
sexist. Uh, the fact that uh, yin is dark in here and that's equated to the feminine energy means that these this is uh, a hierarchical, patriarchal system. People don't really think of that with the yin and yang, but it's the same concept. And you shouldn't think about that with the yin and yang. I think that that is somehow something, I guess because it's Eastern and seems a little bit removed from the Western structures that people focus on around me. Uh, they forget that it's all tied into these same archetypal systems. So when you think of the masculine and feminine and the sacred alchemical marriage, think of the yin and yang if you don't want to get tied up in gender politics about it. It's a good, it's a good place marker because that's what I'm talking about here. And our brains, our psyches, in order to hold on to these things and utilize the symbols around us and how we interact with them, you know, it's going to take those symbols and collage them together to try and explain, to try and give us messages, you know, these alarm bell systems, these phantom limbs of the psyche, it's going to animate these phantom limbs of the psyche so that we might notice them and address them. And so in terms of, so the big, the crucial piece here being the union of opposites, however you want to approach it, you know, you can be non-binary, transgender, and approaching the alchemical, the, the ancient esoteric alchemical motif of the union of opposites is what you need to hold on to here. If you don't like the genderification of the divine masculine and feminine, as I said, they're on the bottom of the totem pole of this giant umbrella tree that is basically, you know, the trees of life and death, among other things, but um, which you can find uh, explanations of further in the images of God and the devil episodes. But I digress. So we're going to talk about Jung's relationship to his feminine energy, the anima. He wrote this in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, saying, I was greatly intrigued by the fact that a woman should interfere with me from within. At first, it was the negative aspect of the anima that most impressed me. I felt a little awed by her. It was like the feeling of an invisible presence in the room. Then a new idea came to me. In putting down all this material for analysis, I was in effect writing letters to the anima, that is, to a part of myself with a different viewpoint from my conscious one. I got remarks on an unusual and unexpected character. I was like a patient in analysis with a ghost and a woman. And once more concerning Jung and his relationship to his anima, he also wrote, Every evening I wrote very conscientiously, for I thought if I did not write, there would be no way for the anima to get at my fantasies. Also, by writing them out, I gave her no chance to twist them into intrigues. There is a tremendous difference between intending to tell someone and actually telling it. In order to be as honest as possible with myself, I wrote everything down very carefully, following the old Greek maxim, give away all that thou hast, then, thou, then shalt thou receive. What the anima said seemed to me full of deep cunning. If I had taken these fantasies of the unconscious as art, they would have carried no more conviction than visual perceptions as if I were watching a movie. I would have felt no moral obligation toward them. The anima might have easily seduced me into believing that I was a misunderstood artist and that my so-called artistic nature gave me the right to neglect reality. If I had followed her voice, she would in all probability have said to me one day, do you imagine the nonsense you are engaged in is really art? Not a bit. Thus, the insinuations of the anima the mouthpiece of the unconscious can utterly destroy a man or a person. Uh, in the final analysis, the decisive factor is always consciousness, which can understand the manifestations of the unconscious and take up a position towards them. What was I saying? Today, I no longer need these conversations with the anima, for I no longer have such emotions. But if I did have them, I would deal with them in the same way. I wrote these fantasies down first in the black book. Later, I transferred them to the red book, which I have, which I always embellished with drawings. And that was from Memories, Dreams, Reflections. 
And I would like to read one last small thing from the book before I informally wrap this up with y'all here. At the end of Gautier's Faust, the soul of Gretchen and other great mother divine feminine archetypes gather in the afterlife with a man named Dr. Marianus to discover where Faust's soul should be reborn. The poem ends with the lines, All of the transient is parable only. The insufficient here grows to reality. The indescribable here is done. Woman eternal beckons us on. So I have a great respect for the divine feminine. Um, and my relationships throughout my life have helped me come to terms with the anima inside me, my own connection to the divine feminine itself. And today I feel very comfortable with those divine fractal parts of myself. You know, it's always a work in progress, but um, I think uh, Jung's words of his own journey um, ring true. You know, eventually going about those processes, you don't need them in the same ways. And, you know, if you want a lot of detail, you can go get my book, Dive Manual. But suffice it to say, the union of opposites and working with these things, fleshing them out, um, taking it a step further. And in my case, what I did was not only processing it through my art, but also processing it through my prayer and meditation and ritual and ceremony, which are in effect the you know hypnotic trance states that the mystics have been working with for time immemorial. And they are not beholden to one specific person. Any single person can utilize these things. It's all part of our, our, our psyches. And I guess just some people are more inclined to it than others these trance states just like some people are better at math so don't discount dreams and regardless of what's go really going on on the other side i think it's safe to say that we're not in control of all the parts of our lives and that we should take that seriously don't take it lightly anyway i think that's about it for now folks um hopefully i tied up those loose ends pretty well and i gave you some interesting takeaway food for thought about dreams the metaphysical process uh the psychic phantom limbs and you know quote unquote sleep entities the siren shadow people sleep paralysis we'll be back with more next week thank you for joining me don't forget to check out that ufo documentary that i'm a part of uh, you can find it on the mind escape patreon Get my books, Dive Manual and Hunt Manual at divemind.net. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Take care out rising spit the fire on these vultures told me go to hell oh well rapping for the culture effervescent like shining like spirits in the water moonshine never want a mic step before the sun the devil's altered science got to be steady multiplying nobody questioning the wisdom of a starving lion my heart is iron strongest giants ain't as hard as i am you can't change the world nothing wrong with trying nothing wrong with dying righteous on the road to zion your mama crying flooded out of stripping no replying no complying with the system Victims wanna riot, we write the wrong storming castles with the ultraviolence. We never silence in the war zone, it's them or us. The venom plus exit pigs, brain with metal bus. One in the temple trust, leaving tiny mental crust. Ash to ashes, return to elemental dust. Yeah. Yeah. Like Arnold, you get terminated, laser beams emit through the eyes, you looking mutilated. 
my iris state mutated Yes, it mutated Optic blast with a flash here You getting amputated I'm seeing things like Edgar Casey Being fascinated with the future Can't let my present get confiscated Devastated by the words and the cross Gotta push in the daisy Seeing more flowers in the floors All aboard the soul train You go missing like a course Reloading magazines You tapped into the source On tracks of saddle Watching all them satellites fall Are you hating motherfuckers Kiss my dragon size balls I'm gassed up That's right Pissing out ethanol My approach to making music Like crowbars to the skull Planting C4s on the walls of City Hall <laughs>